Welcome to the Best Work Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Henley-Smith. The goal of this show is to uncover the personal stories of successful software engineers, founders, thinkers and leaders who are all navigating their own working journey. Finding our best work is often a hidden journey, uncovered through an ongoing conversation with ourselves and the world around us. Every one of these episodes is packed, full of timeless ideas you could apply to your own life. In this conversation, I speak to David Kadavi, host of the Love Your Work podcast and best-selling author of The Heart to Start and Design for Hackers. A deep and often lateral thinker about work, David is profoundly self-aware of how the cultural programming he experienced growing up conditioned his attitudes towards work. In our conversation, he shares with me the steps he took and the challenges he faced in overcoming these barriers, as well as the systems-based approach he now uses to identify productive avenues of new creative work. We discuss the importance of randomness, of overcoming our fear of failure, and of identifying and embracing our innate curiosity in assessing our work. David also shares his own experience of how meditation can, and has for him, shaped his approach to work. How do you think our mind gets in the way of us finding our best work? For me, that was, I had a lot of, different cultural programming that um, created a lot of baggage around around work. I grew up in uh, Nebraska in the middle of the U.S., and it was a very different time or different place uh, before the Internet. I mean, you, were, you literally just only had access to whatever media was funneled to you and then the people who were around you. And so, like, growing up in a suburban place, you know, everybody around me has got sort of a middle management job at uh, an insurance company or something like that. And so there was, there was this just very instilled in me belief that, um, that it's very important to have a job. Um, it doesn't necessarily matter what that job is. That doesn't, you don't, you, you, you wouldn't expect to enjoy your work or your job. Uh, it's not something that you would uh, mess around with after hours. Our upbringing, our cultural programming, the the beliefs that we have, those are some big mental barriers to 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 doing work that we're going to enjoy, that we're going to find fulfilling. Because you know, we just don't have maybe an example or somebody that we've met or talked to uh, that that uh, we, we can model ourselves after. How did you get over that barrier? How did you end up in Silicon Valley in that circumstance? Uh, it was very, it was a very roundabout and kind of lucky thing. I just, despite being in an upbringing, I still was always creative as a child. I spent so many hours in my room drawing and that's what I wanted. I wanted to be an artist, you know, like, um, I wanted to, you know, what's the use of being an impressionist painter in the 21st century? I don't, I don't know, but that was kind of like my idea. But then there was this thing instilled to me like, well, you got to get a job. You're going to go to college and you're going to study something. It's got to be something that you can get a job with. 
And while I was lucky enough to have parents that, that weren't like, no, you're going to study business and that's it. It was still instilled in me like, you know, you want to have a, 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 a marketable skill. And so I picked like commercial art <laughs> at first was what it was called. That's so funny. Just a <laughs> slight tweak. It's commercial art, right? It's art, but it's commercial. Uh, and it, it later became like known graphic, or it was called visual communication design or something. Later became graphic design. I transferred colleges. Uh, once I kind of like started to understand that uh, profession and field and started to enjoy it um, and became very passionate about it. Um, but it was just one little thing after it, uh, after another where I was just scared out of my wits um, to take these steps that I didn't see other people taking. And not just because, you know, they were truly scary things. I just had a lot of, I, I just lacked confidence, I guess. I, 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 was, I was very afraid to go, you know, two hours from my home to a, a college or to transfer from one college to another in the middle of the year and not know anybody. I was like so scared about that. It sounds like you lack perspective too, if you're in that bubble. And it's mm -hmm. then hard to see what that type of work exists outside of it. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, if, if I can make the long story short, I guess uh, went to college, went did a study abroad in Rome. That opened up my my eyes to the Pandora's box of all the different ways that that there are other different different ways of living or. We're seeing the world uh, and then ended up having to come back to Omaha and work for three years at a job there and made my blog in 2004, put up my design work, um, kind of put some feelers out there and got discovered by a startup in Silicon Valley. And just it was just a miracle to me to to get out of Nebraska and move to California. It's amazing how much the infrastructure and your geography affects your work choice oh huge especially then this was 25 years ago or something and you know i've got perspective on this i live in colombia now i know how hard it is for a lot of people who are born here who just don't have a lot of opportunities but at the same time like being born in nebraska like I was born in America, okay? Like that was huge. It's like a huge ovarian lottery win, um, as as my former neighbor Warren Buffett would call it. Uh, and but at the same time, like I remember living in San Jose. So San Jose was the first place I I went to, and I was just like, I'm going to California. That's awesome. Turns out San Jose. I don't know. It kind of sucks to live. It wasn't what I was looking, what I you know had envisioned or was looking for. I had a good like first year there. I decided I was going to move to San Francisco. San Francisco is what an hour and a half train ride away, something like that. I figured I would just go ahead and do the horrible commute for a while until I found something else. But I remember going to move up there. I remember talking to people who were San Jose natives who were like, "Oh wow, yeah, you're moving to San Francisco." I would, you know, gosh, I've thought maybe someday I might do that. Like, like what? You live you're an hour away. How could you not? And uh, I'm sure that the like 
when an immigrant comes to the United States, they're probably like looking at all the Americans thinking the, the same thing. Like, what? How could you like this opportunity is right I, there. Like, how could you this, not do something? It's absolutely the same when Americans come to the UK and they say, well, you haven't been to Belgium. Like, what's going on? It's so just over there. Or you haven't been to Paris. It's like, yeah, yeah. What the hell? So definitely, like, when I hear people say, you know, I, I think it's all relative. I hear people say, like, oh, you know, I, I grew up in Long Island. Like, it was some sort of hardship that they lived an hour away from the cultural mecca of the entire world, New York City. Um, but I'm sure that, like, people who aren't from the United States hear my, like, story right. about growing up in Nebraska mm. or whatever. is like, oh, boo-hoo, born in America. Um, but I was scared. Uh <laughs> I was scared to make changes and, and, and do things, but I just mm. did it over and over again until I wasn't scared anymore, I guess. Besides the physical nature that you're, you were surrounded with and the geography that was around you, the physical barriers that stopped you finding that work, what barriers of the mind did you encounter finding your best work and what barriers of the mind do you think people typically hit when they're trying to find their best work i think a big one is should what you feel like you should do uh what uh, the definition of success is and i had seen enough where say for example growing up in nebraska there was a certain definition of success if you go get the job at mutual of omaha or such and such insurance company and get your benefits and you know get a stable job for years and years and years well hey you've got it made um and then i remember coming to silicon valley and seeing people who like they had gone to an ivy league uh school uh they'd gone to yale or harvard or stanford places that when I met those people, I, I just thought to myself, wow, uh, I've never met a person who's gone to one of those schools. I That wasn't even presented to me as like an option of a thing that you could do. I thought that that was just for people in movies. Um, but at the same time, I could see how they still had this expectation on them by their family or their friends or their social group where they still had to, they felt they still need, needed to demonstrate some kind of success. Um, like, oh, you know, they chose the startup route instead of, you know, being a doctor. or They chose the startup route instead of being uh, in finance or something like that. And, oh, are they going to disappoint their family? Things like that. Uh, and I, I think it was nice for me to be exposed to that because... At, at some point, I kind of just decided, well, hey, I don't have to define my success by anything. I've got no pressure. I mean, like, yeah, my family maybe had certain expectations for me. They weren't, like, overbearing about uh, about it. Um, but I didn't have the same pressure as, say, those people did. Yet I had this opportunity of being in Silicon Valley by accident, surrounded by these uh, extremely motivated um, you know, talented people, um, rich people. And, uh, and so I kind of wanted to make my own 
a definition of success out of that. But I had to, at the same time, wrestle with um, taking on some of their definitions of success for a while before I decided that maybe that that wasn't for me. So, for example, when I started on my own, one of the things I did, I... I uh, built an app and, uh, you know, talked about that I was going to raise money and start having all these employees and get an office and all these things. But I never made one uh, meeting with an investor. <laughs> um, and I think ultimately I just decided like, oh, that's actually not what I want. <laughs> I don't want to manage people. I want to like just sit and be like when I was a kid and sit in my room by myself and tinker around with things and follow my curiosity and see what comes of it and see and see how I can repeat that process over and over again of doing that, make something that makes some some money, free up a little bit more of that curiosity, a little bit more of that freedom and repeat that process over and over again. And so now I've been doing that for 15 years. Now that you've transitioned from that narrow perspective to perhaps a wider perspective, if if you could say that, you almost f now fall into the trap of choice. You have so many things that you can yes. do. Yes. How do you get over that? Um, I hope that I do. Uh, <laughs> I I am in in that right now. I've got a, a series of books. Um, that has two books in it right now, uh, The Heart to Start and Mind Management, Not Time Management. It's called the Getting Art Done series. And there's one more book that I want to add to that trilogy. And these books are about getting art done. These books are about creative productivity. But, uh, and I think that like I got interested in writing these topics because these are things that I struggled with myself. But I am also aware of the fact that if I were to only write about creative productivity for the rest of my life, I'd be kind of succumbing to the resistance uh, or that Stephen Pressfield calls the re resistance. It's easy for you to just like shadow box or I don't know what the, a good metaphor is, like wrestle with this, this almost a... Um, almost a straw man of how do you do creative productivity? How do you create things? How do you get over the mental and emotional barriers to, to discover what it is that you have to offer the world and put that into the world? Well, if I were to do that forever and not actually do that myself, um, not that I haven't, but uh, then I think that would be, that would be bad. I, I want to avoid that. Uh, and so, in the meantime, as I'm working on like this third book in the trilogy, I'm also working on the side on other projects. They're a little bit like a fiction project or, um, you know, a, a project with a hobby that really interests me and things like that that are happening in the background. And I'm dabbling with those things, hoping that they will pull me in um, or reach some level of success by being backburner projects that they are able to pull me in and, and away from the things that are already successful. Um, and I'm, I'm, I recognize that that trap is there. And so that's why I say, I hope that I can escape that trap. Um, you know, talk to me in five years and we'll see whether I, whether I've done it or not. Um, if I'm, if I'm so fortunate to, to continue to be uh, alive and healthy and, and doing these things. Yeah. 
how do you deal with the fact that your whatever you choose you're going to miss out on something and mm -hmm. in some ways we all have it's kind of unfair to say that we all have a one unique thing that we are good at and that we can share a lot of the time me is we we have so many different parts to ourselves and the work that we do is therefore so many different things we have so many i, I could imagine being so doing so many different jobs and yeah how how do, how do you deal with the fact that actually you you, you kind of got to try and pick one because you know the focus needs to go in a certain direction but by doing so you're letting other ideas and other passions not be that focus one thing one way that i try to approach things is well i guess first of all there's this belief that you have to like really commit to one thing and that is somewhat true um, but at the same time, you can actually make a decent amount of progress uh, on different other things just by like making little side projects. And I think that um, this age of media that we live in, where um, you know you can have it, you can make a little Twitter account for your project and just have it sitting on the side and and tweet things and kind of grow things and, and play with it, and then maybe that feeds your original project. And then maybe someday that has grown to an extent where you, you jump into it. Like you can actually have a lot of different things going on at the same time and they can't, and you don't necessarily have to specialize. You can go do something that's totally unrelated. And if it's fun, if you're having fun, if it's successful, it can actually make your other things quite successful too. I mean, look at Elon Musk, how many different businesses uh, is he in? And it's like continues to raise his profile and these things feed into each other. Um, and it, that's something that you can be strategic about, but in some ways it kind of just takes over itself. Every little project I do, I've got secret projects on the side that nobody knows about um, that I mess around with and stuff. And sometimes things from that, I, I, I learn something and then it helps with my, with my main projects. And I think over time, like those things can all... Um, uh, they can all feed one another and they can grow into different things. Are there any other ways other than working on multiple projects that we can optimize for emergence and accelerating interest? Yeah, I think, I think systems, not goals, right? Uh, instead of saying, I'm going to do this particular project, you create uh, a system that uh, involve that helps you create multiple tiny projects that uh, build into one another. I, I have easy examples because I'm a writer. Uh, and so like every tweet that I tweet on Twitter <laughs> uh, is one of these little projects. It, it's me sharing an idea. It's me testing something out. And sometimes I spend hours on a tweet. And, and then I have systems for collecting which of those ideas went really well. And then they become uh, Love Monday's newsletters. It might be a 200, 300 word essay that I write about those things. And then um, from, from there, it might become a podcast episode uh, where it's uh, 1500 words uh, on my podcast, Love Your Work. And then from there, like those things, I can keep doing that. And then there starts to become this big body of work where I can say, oh, these pieces fit together. Now that's a book. And so that's my process now for, for writing books. And I have systems for these things. I mean, I 
have systems. When I like my own tweet on Twitter, I've got a Zapier automation that shares that uh, saves it to an Airtable spreadsheet. I can sort them by the number of likes, and I can keep track of which ones I've expanded into larger ideas. Um, I've got the the system set up where I can add like a book or a cool tool or a quote that I've collected from somewhere, and it sucks it all up into a markdown file that I can then just copy and paste into my email. Um, uh, into my email system. And, and that's a, a system that works. You, you build these habits, you build these systems, you create what you create, not necessarily to just to create those things, but to become the person that you want to be. Um, so the, that because of these things, I am reading constantly. I'm constantly taking notes. I've used this system called Zettelkasten that I've written a short book about. Um, that also has emergent properties where I'm just working on one little note at a time. Just this one highlight from this book makes me follow up on these different elements and make one little note and put some tags together. And then the next thing you know, it connects together with some other note. And the next thing you know, I've got a whole article idea. These things just emerge from these systems and habits um, that follow the ebbs and flows of my curiosity that follow the ebbs and flows of my creative energy and uh, help me help motivate me to do the things that I would hope that I would be doing. If you were to come out of your own circumstance there, how do you think someone could use a systems approach to finding work? So, so for example, if you were, say, a freelancer, um, what are you interested in? What uh, are you really curious about? That's something that I think that a lot of people don't get the chance or give themselves the mental space to ask themselves. Um, looking for that little dopamine hit when you uh, see something that's extremely interesting to you that is in some field rather than thinking, okay, well, what's, you know, what's going to pay me the most or what is, uh, exactly going to fit my skills and experience and then trying to kind of reverse engineer those things. So let's say you, uh, you're in one field and, but you want to get into another field and you find a company that you really want to work for. Well, then ask yourself, all right, well, who is making decisions at that company? And if you kind of look around, you might, um, you might uh, float around on LinkedIn for a little bit and kind of see where the connections are and try to see if you can find your way, your way in there or you can um, do some kind of a, uh, a stunt that gets them on your radar, for example. So uh, if I were to apply that to a, a job, I, I don't necessarily have an idea right off the top of my head for that. But for myself, like I recently advertised my book in Times Square. And uh, I found just through what was interesting to me, I found that, oh, you can actually advertise in Times Square for like as little as $20. Okay, well, but if you take a picture of it, uh, it's worth a lot more than twenty dollars because now you've advertised in Times Square and you can tell other people about it. So I advertised in Times Square, hired a photographer to take a picture of it and a video of it, shared it, blogged about it, 
shared it on Twitter. I got a retweet from Tim Ferriss, 1.8 million followers. I got invited to uh, speak at the New York Public Library because of that. Because I just like got on the radar. It was one of these emergence things where if I would have just like, you know, if I tried to message Tim Ferriss and get him to retweet something, what he's not going to even see it or... Or, or care if I message the New York Public Library and say I'm going to speak there, they'd be like, "Why? You don't even live in New York, and like, I don't understand why why you would, you would speak here." So I think thinking indirectly uh, is one of these ways that you can take advantage of the this sort of like those network effects, that complexity that you don't see, um, that I think is full of untapped opportunities. It doesn't have to be all of your time and energy, but having a little bit of fun, letting some randomness take over, you can have all sorts of exciting things happen that you never could have possibly foreseen. Why aren't people more random? What stops us doing that more? Well, we want to feel secure. We want to feel like we know what's going to happen. We, uh, we want to be able to tell our friends and family why we're doing what we're doing. And if you can let go of that, then that becomes um, it becomes a lot more comfortable to be to be random. And this is why something like the barbell strategy works out really well is, you know, maybe you have your day job. You do some really secure thing. A, a lot of writers, uh, Charles Bukowski worked at the post office. Uh, Anthony Trollope was a. Uh, I think he also worked at the post office. Uh, John Grisham was a, a lawyer. And, you know, you write that you do some writing on the train on your way to work or uh, at, at night when you get home. You write yourself a novel, you put it out there and uh, maybe something amazing happens. I think that just that we are afraid of uncertainty and, you know, and that's that's natural. So maybe just do just enough to keep that fear at bay, but also do some things where you're kind of like, ooh, what's going to happen? I have no idea if this is going to work or not. Like something exciting is going to happen. I, I want to see what tomorrow is like. Um, and I think that's a great way to embrace randomness. It strikes me that I people may not do so because they're worried about failing. Looking mm, stupid, yes, that too. Yeah. trying something out and it not working because in some way we need to say that we were doing something for a reason and we achieved it and that kind of more random, sporadic tro tro kind of f f failure mode doesn't really come out. Yeah, yeah, we're afraid of failure and uh, I mean, and that's part of the process. And I think this also comes from. Uh, that upbringing, that uh, programming, cultural programming that we have, that we're used to being in this world where you follow these steps. And if you follow these steps, you'll have this result. You'll often hear like people talk about entrepreneurial advice, career advice, things and say, well, that's, um, you know, that's survivorship bias. Uh, you know, you can't just drop out of college like Mark Zuckerberg or Bill Gates and and expect that to work because they're the survivors. You didn't hear from people who dropped out of college that weren't successful. But you apply that to any other thing where somebody dismisses some advice or something that they could possibly do because they look at the person who succeeded and say, well, they were a survivor. If you're building a product, a 
Great product often feels like a toy. It almost feels like a scam. It's like so obvious to you that you're like, this is just, it's like strange. In the same way that like Airbnb, let me host strangers in my house. Like what? No, I'm not going to do that. That sounds ridiculous. But it's such an obvious idea hidden in plain sight that is so evident to us in hindsight because it then fits the narrative fallacy but looking forward it feels it feels strange how do we get over that feeling of feeling strange of embracing mm-hmm. those playful kid-like ideas as the future yeah and this goes back to what we were uh, i mean uh, that last answer was supposed to be about getting over failure and the lesson from that is that is that you know failing is is a part of the process and i think it's useful even to like do things that you expect to fail or that you you don't know they're going to work um and you and it's almost like it's a joke uh, i love the story of teenage mutant ninja turtles um these guys were sitting in their apartment and one of them doodled a uh, ninja turtle actually if you think about it like that's actually a pretty funny idea um turtles are really slow ninjas are really fast and so the other guy thought that was hilarious. He drew a Ninja Turtle. And then the other guy wound up and, and drew like four of them in sort of a stance like this and then decided, oh, these, these are uh, teenage and mutant Ninja Turtles. And they're laughing to each other. And one of them recalled that he said, oh, this is the dumbest thing ever. <laughs> they sold a billion dollars in toys, just toys <laughs> in like yeah, four not years. Not anymore. Yeah, they went in. They went ahead and they they self published their first book. They scraped together maybe three thousand dollars or something to self publish their first uh, issue of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. That's the thing. It's like these remarkable things that seem dumb that your friends and family might even say are dumb. Those are the things that you should be doing, and that's one of the tough things to get over. Is like, oh, are they going to laugh at me? Um, those sort of things, because those are the things that are remarkable. So much of this comes from curiosity and yeah. this this playful this playful curiosity. How do we cultivate curiosity? I think it's there. I think it I think it gets beaten out of us. It was beaten out of me, for sure. Like when I went out on my own in 15 years ago, that was. You know, I remember waking up that first morning, opening my eyes, and it was just like, oh, my God, I have nothing on the schedule today. I've resolved that I'm not going to work for somebody else, and I have no idea what I'm going to do. But I was just so burned out. And so I thought back to when I was a kid and and when I would be in my room by myself playing, like counting change or playing with magnets or drawing pictures of Ninja Turtles. And I thought... Like that feeling of, oh, I forgot to eat, <laughs> you know, or just what time is it? Oh, my gosh, I can't believe that much time has passed. So just that feeling of being immersed. I just, oh, what, when was the last time I felt that way? Can I still feel that way? And so that was the process for me was that was my main metric can i recreate that feeling and it's not always going to be the same things for me because i'm somebody who gets curious about a new thing every couple weeks or so and so that's what i've been doing for the last 15 years is just chasing that feeling and part of it was also because down the hallway was guitar hero um 
you know, a video game, which is very fun. And I knew that whatever I decided to do with my time was going to have to compete with that. That I was only I was going to be there to motivate myself. And whatever I chose to do was going to have to be more fun and engaging to me and productive than sitting and, and learning how to play a fake guitar with buttons on it that isn't even that doesn't actually even teach you how to play a real guitar. <laughs> Could I finally ask you about meditation? And sure. what role meditation what role do you think meditation plays in finding our best work? Huge, totally underrated role. Um, and maybe it's one thing that I take for granted because I've done quite a bit of meditation. And um, and I don't actually, if you were to ask me, you know, I, would, I wouldn't have even thought to, to bring it up, but it's actually incredibly important uh, to my work. Um, and when it has been most fruitful for me was when I did a 60-day, 60 60-hour 60 meditation challenge. Uh, picked this up from Naval Ravikant, who's, uh, was a, who's, who was an angel investor and um, very successful entrepreneur. And um, it basically, he espouses this no effort meditation. And I, this really appealed to me because sometimes meditation for me can become a toxic productivity thing where I feel like, oh, I'm not doing it right. Um, you know, I, oh, I've got to keep my streak up, things like that. And so he espouses you just sit there with your eyes closed, but you have to do it for 60 minutes and you let your thoughts flow. Let them, and you don't have any judgments about those thoughts and you're not trying to not think about something, you're not trying to, to think about something. And something really amazing happens right around the half hour mark for that and it just changes like this everlasting gobstopper. One of the things I discovered was by creating that time where I'm doing nothing, those crazy ideas that I would normally just forget about or gloss over or not pursue, um, those started to take uh, a bigger presence in my mind to where I might have had, had the idea of like, oh, maybe I should write a book about Zettelkasten. No, no, that would never work because that's just too obscure. Nobody would really care about that. And uh, I've got other things I want to do. Well, when I meditate for 60 hours, uh, for in 60 days, like I started thinking about that more and more. And then it became that much more important where like I decided, okay, well, I will write this book about digital Zettelkasten. And it turned out to be this, this surprise hit book for me where it was like an 80 page book that um, shares this methodology that, that I had struggled to learn myself. And, um, you know, immediately was selling quite a few books. I've sold foreign rights deals for it and stuff. And uh, so creating that space is incredibly important. I think that's what's what's useful for meditation is uh, if you are to turn it into a productivity thing, which I know is in some ways a bastardization or a, a perversion of what meditation is supposed to be about, um, it actually is quite productive because it helps those ideas take presence. And, and being productive these days isn't so much about how quickly can I do this, how, how many of these can I produce? It's more about what's the quality, how, what's the quality of this idea? I'm so grateful for you taking the space to have this conversation too. And I'm particularly grateful for your insights on 
systems as there's such a healthy antidote to the hustle ultra productivity culture um and uh yeah i'm really i'm really thankful i'm thankful for being on here ben uh, it's an honor to be invited and uh I think we were gonna we were gonna have a conversation, but I ended up just answering all your questions. But <laughs> loved every second of it. That was really Me good, too. man. Really good. And I, I, it is. I think for me personally, like the the thing that I will take from that definitely the way that you talk about that system is it is like such a breath of fresh air compared to hmm. your other your other kind of complete focus crap where we all just stay in our lanes and you got to work really hard and, and do this one thing over and over again until it works at the end. I love it. Yeah. I mean, there's this, there's this unsettling kind of thing lately where, um, people seem to think that the opposite of, of that type of productivity is to, um, reject the entire idea of productivity. Yeah. You know, there's there's these books about oh, you screw productivity, or here's how to do nothing, or you know, life your life is going to end anyway, etc. Whatever. Well, there's an alternative to that. Mm. It's called like doing being productive. It's something that matters to you and that you actually enjoy. Like what what do you think you're here for? <laughs> All right. Thanks. Have a great evening. Bye. You too. Have a great day. <laughs> yeah. The Best Work Podcast is produced by the team at Cord. I'd love your advice on how we can make sure the Best Work Podcast is having a profound impact on the way we all pursue our best work. Email me at benatcord.co. You can also find a transcript of this conversation, insightful video content, and more at cord.co slash insights. Thanks for listening.